Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, What's in the Air? Assess, Control, and Improve the Air Quality in Your Welding Environment, sponsored by Miller Electric. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I'm moderating today's session. Thank you all for joining us. We're going to start the presentation in a few minutes, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speaker and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question anytime during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I will let you know more about that after this presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. Finally, if you need basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Andy Monk, Brian Belisle, Susan Fiore, and Bert Schiller. Andy Monk is a Bernard product line manager for semi-automatic products within the commercial and construction slash fabrication markets. His primary focus is on the truck and trailer, oil and gas, and light-duty market segments. In this role, Andy is responsible for integrated commercial guns, self-shielded FCAW guns, fume guns, water-cooled guns, and semi-auto consumables. Brian Belisle has gained an array of knowledge and skills as a mechanical engineer and product manager for ITW Welding over the past seven years. He currently is a product manager with the Miller Welding Safety and Health Team, overseeing the welding environment category, including Miller fume extraction and respiratory products. Susan Fiore is an advanced applications manager with ITW Hobart Brothers Welding. She is a materials engineer with over 30 years' experience in the welding industry. Her expertise covers a broad range of welding and weldability-related concerns. She has extensive experience with issues related to the weldability of steels, nickel-based alloys, product development, and welding fume mitigation and control. In her current role with Hobart, she works closely with customers to resolve issues and promote new ideas in welding innovations. Susan is past chair of the American Welding Society Safety and Health Committee and currently serves as chair of the AWS Safety and Health Subcommittee on Fumes and Gas. Prior to joining Hobart Brothers, she worked at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory as well as safety manager, and at Edison Welding Institute as a product manager and senior engineer. Bert Schiller is an industrial hygienist certified in the comprehensive practice of industrial hygiene. He has over 35 years of experience with a wide variety of industries. Bert also worked with OSHA in Michigan for five years and has taught at the University of Michigan for the past five years. Speakers, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Before we get started and talk about weld fume, uh, we'd like to make one quick note that every welding environment is different and needs to be evaluated by a qualified industrial hygienist to, de to determine the appropriate course of action for fume controls. This presentation is intended for awareness and introductory purposes and should not be used to replace professional consultation or complete review of owner's manuals. To start things off, we'd like to take the time to briefly discover what weld fume is and the common types of hazards found in this fume, as there are many forms that a hazard can be in the air. A fume itself is defined as a solid particulate in the air and is usually less than one micron in diameter. Gas, however, is a low density material and responds greatly to changes in temperature and pressure. Mist is defined as a liquid droplet that is suspended in the air. And finally, a vapor is a gaseous form of a substance that we normally see in its liquid or solid state at normal room uh, temperatures and pressure. Today, let's dive a little deeper into fume particulate itself, specifically looking at weld fumes. These particulates consist of metallic oxides and can be generated 
during welding from a variety of things, such as heating of the base metal, the welding consumables themselves, or any coatings that could be present on the base metals um, or the consumables of both welding and cutting processes. The size of the particulate that's found in welding fume is usually between 0.3 and 1 micron in size, with the most common being on the smaller end around 0.3 microns. Due to this small size, it makes it harder to capture and even more hazardous when looking at it for a welder's health. There are many types of particulates that can be a hazard when looking at weld fume, but shown here are a few of the common ones that we see within the welding industry. Aluminum for welding with aluminum materials, beryllium for welding with copper and aluminum alloys, hexavalent chromium when using stainless, manganese from high tensile steels, and zinc oxide from galvanized materials. Now that we've defined what weld fume and the hazard is, Bert will walk us through identifying what type and the level of the hazard in the air. Thank you, Brian. So when we're talking about welding fumes, we want to talk about the basics, how, what, where, and when. The most important factor is how much welding is actually being done. Obviously, it's going to make a big difference whether it's a full shift, eight-hour production operation, or is it just simple maintenance welding that maybe only lasts 10 or 15 minutes a day. The second factor of what type of welding is being conducted, flux core, MIG, TIG, these are all completely different types of welding processes. The ones I just mentioned are in the descending order of potential risk. Thirdly, what's the base metal you're welding on? Is it common mild steel? Is it stainless steel? Perhaps it's galvanized. Each of these different base metal poses different risk, and the exposures can be vastly different depending on the base metal. Fourth, where is the welding being conducted? This is a common sense one. Is it a well-ventilated area, or is it in a small confined space with very little air movement? And then lastly, when are there changes that impact the environment? Uh, has the workspace changed? Is there new or reconfigured workspaces, new equipment, new applications? For example, have coatings been, on, uh, been put on the surface of the metal? Has it been painted recently? A little while ago, I, I talked about the length of exposure. We're going to talk about some of the occupational exposure limits now. First, OSHA. Everybody's familiar with OSHA, the o Occupational Safety and Health Administration. The first set of permissible exposure limits came about in the early 1970s when the OSHA Act was implicated. Actually, for the first several decades of OSHA, there was a general welding fume exposure limit. It was actually 5 milligrams per cubic meter. They rescinded that limit though, about 10 or 15 years ago, so currently there is no general standard for general welding fume. However, in recent years, OSHA has re returned and paid more attention to the risk involved with welding. Back in 2006, OSHA issued a new standard for exposure to hexavalent chromium, setting up a permissible exposure limit of 5 micrograms per cubic meter and an action level of one-half that amount. Now, remember, uh, I talked about base metal, the importance of base metals. Trivalent chromium is present in stainless steel. That's what gives us its qualities that we desire. But when heated to the temperatures of a welding uh, process, that trivalent chromium is transformed into hexavalent chrome, which is much more reactive, and it's also reactive to lung tissue. So because of that potential hazard, OSHA issued this standard in 2006. OSHA has also placed exposure to manganese on its uh, uh, list of intended regulatory actions. And this action was taken because of another group, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Now, this group predated OSHA by a couple of decades. They actually set the first set of exposure limits anywhere in the world. This is not a governmental agency. It's a volunteer professional society. Back in the 1950s, they set a, a list of occupational exposure limits called threshold limit values. 
These TLVs form the basis of the first list of OSHA PELs that were written in the 1970s. Well, these folks are very active. They take a look at all the exposure limits, and every year they update several of them. Back in 2006, the ACGIH set a new threshold limit value for manganese at 0.2 milligrams per cubic meter. Now, just to give you some contrast, the existing OSHA PEL for manganese is 5.0. So this is uh, uh, significantly lower. That's 25 times lower than the existing OSHA limit. And then going even further, in 2009, the ACGIH established a notice of intended change, changing the limit down to 0.02. So that's 250 times more restrictive than the OSHA exposure limit for manganese. When assessing the health hazards, it's, uh, it's good to have any good safety professional as a place to start. It's best to bring in a professional industrial hygienist to, extent, to evaluate the extent of the potential risk. There are certified industrial hygienists, CIHs, which are certified by the American Board of Industrial Hygiene. And although anybody can be qualified to take a sample, it's best to get a CIH to at least review the results of the samples that are being taken. Hygienists can be found on a corporate staff. They're available through your insurance broker or underwriter. There are also consultants, and you can check the American Industrial Hygiene Association they have a list of consultants that might be uh, used. Next, we're going to move over and talk about the uh, hierarchy of controls. How do you control welding fumes? There's uh, in Industrial Hygiene 101, we learn there's a hierarchy of controls, not only for welding fume management, but any occupational health risk. And the best way to control a risk is either by elimination or substitution. Susan's going to talk about some of these uh, in a minute. For one, one reason, we can lower the uh, percentage of manganese in the welding electrode, for example. There's engineering controls. Typically here we're talking about mechanical ventilation systems. We're going to talk about those also. Then, of course, there's work practice and administrative controls. And last but not least, there's personal protective equipment. That's our hierarchy of controls. So, Susan, I'm going to pass it off to you. Thanks, Bert. Um, I, like Bert said, I'm going to be talking about the process mod modification and substitution, which is the top of the hierarchy of controls. Um, obviously, the first option might be to eliminate welding. I'm really not going to talk much about this because, you know, for uh, the purposes of this, this presentation, it's not really necessarily a practical option. Uh, the next, next step might be to modify the welding process. Different processes um, have different, uh, um, different fume uh, levels that, uh, that you might be exposed to. Changing the welding parameters can, can make a difference in the amount of fume that's generated. Uh, automation is another option. If you're automated, you're obviously not going to be exposing the operator uh, to the same level of fumes. Another option would be to change the materials themselves. Uh, Bert mentioned that there are some low manganese uh, filler metals. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about that. Uh, there are also filler metals that uh, are lower in fume generation. Uh, shielding gas can make a difference in the amount of fume that's generated, and as Bert mentioned, the base metal is also important. If it's a coated or galvanized material, um, if it's got a lot of mill scale, uh, cleaning off the mill scale can make a big difference in the amount of, of fume that you uh, get from the welding process. One thing that you have to keep in mind is whether or not you know, changing the materials and changing the process will require recertification. So um, that can be an added expense if that's necessary, if there's additional training required, that sort of a thing. So you've got to keep all those things in mind. So the first step would be the process modification or substitution. And as you can see from this graph, 
there is a big difference in the amount of fume generation generated depending on the process. If you look to the right in the graph, you can see uh, there's uh, fume levels for gas tungsten arc welding and submerged arc welding, both of which are very low in fume generation. Um, gas tungsten arc welding is, is also very low deposition rate, uses uh, typically uses an argon, straight argon gas, shielding gas, um, and requires a, a lot of welder skill. Uh, submerged arc welding is a process where the uh, welding arc is, is buried under a bed of flux. The flux act, actually acts to capture the fume that's generated, and this keeps the fume exposure very low. But the issue with submerged arc welding is can only be done in the downhand position, either you know, uh, flat or horizontal, typically. So it might not be practical practical for a lot of applications. Some of the more common uh, welding processes are on the uh, left-hand side of the graph, uh, starting with the shielded metal arc welding. Uh, tends to be you know a moderate uh, um, in terms of fume generation. It, uh, it can be a relatively low deposition rate process, um, you know, but it's commonly, very commonly used, obviously. Uh, gas metal welding uh, using CO2 is going to be gen generate a higher level of fume than if you were to switch to pulse um, gas metal arc uh, and, you know, a high, high argon shielding gas. So I'll talk more about those. Uh, factors, the shielding gas and the, and the type of process uh, in one of the later slides. Uh, there's also flux cord arc welding. And again, you can see there's a difference if you use CO2 versus a mixed gas. And like I said, there's also products that are sp specifically formulated to be low fume in uh, uh, flux cord arc welding. And then there's also metal cord, which is kind of a hybrid, MCAW, kind of a hybrid between gas metal arc and flux cord arc welding uh, typically uses a, like a 90 argon, 10% CO2 shielding gas. Um, and uh, the, the core, core ingredients are com comprised of metal powder rather than fluxing ingredients. And uh, that can help reduce fume as well. So I mentioned that the shielding gas can make a big difference in terms of the amount of fume that's generated. This graph shows uh, basically starting on the left, CO2, um, and then as you go progressively to the right, it's higher and higher argon mixes. As you get to the very high ar argon mix, um, your fume rate comes down uh, substantially. Essentially, the difference is that you know, with the oxygen in the shielding gas acts as a, it causes the more volatile components of the, of the metal to uh, oxidize and produce fume. So uh, you'll see, you know, as you, as you lower that, uh, that oxidizing amount in the fume or in the shielding gas, uh, you'll get a fume reduction. Bert mentioned that there also are products that uh, you know are designed specifically to be low manganese in particular. Um, manganese has become more and more of an issue over time and more of a concern. So um, at Hobart and at many of the other manufacturers have now uh, introduced low manganese uh, products, uh, typically either flux cord or metal cord wires. Um, you can see reductions in the amount of manganese generated of 50%. We've actually seen numbers up around 80%. Um, they tend to be you know, low spatter, um, low fuming, um, and you know, they're designed for all sorts of different materials, um, you know, can be used in all positions, that sort of thing. On the right there is actually some some results of some testing that we did in the lab um, on uh, manganese exposure. Um, 
and uh, you can see the, the significant reduction there in the amounts. And again, I mentioned that this was done in the lab, so how this translates to, to an individual facility, obviously you want to do your own testing um, to see you know, where, where you, how much you can reduce using some of these products. Another option, and I mentioned this earlier, is uh, going from standard uh, CV welding to pulse. Um, it's been found, there was a study back in the 90s done by John Deere where it was discovered that using pulse transfer instead of the conventional transfer um, would give a significant uh, reduction in the amount of fume. There's been, you know, a lot of advances in pulse systems in, the, in recent years, and so, you know, the numbers can be even better in terms of, you know, making that transition from pulse to, or from conventional to pulse transfer. So just to kind of summarize what I've been saying, uh, you know, some of the advantages, um, one of the big advantages to making mo modifications to the process is that you're protecting everyone in the area if you have to go to PPE, then you're only protecting that, that the operator. You're not protecting the surrounding area. So changing the uh, process itself can, can uh, help to protect everyone in the area. Um, another advantage is that specific uh, fume constituents, uh, such as manganese, can be targeted. And finally, it's, uh, it's a very easy change to uh, implement. Some of the disadvantages, if you're going to change process, you might need to invest in new equipment. Um, depending on what the change is, you might be able to, you know, you might not have to, but um, if you're welding using stick, stick electrode right now, you'll probably have to change to new equipment if you want to switch to, say, gas metal arc welding. Um, because you're making a you know, change, you might need to retrain some of the welders. Um, you may need to requalify, as I mentioned before. Um, the, one of the issues with going to a higher argon gas mixture, they are typically more expensive than, than CO2. And uh, finally, not all processes will work in all situations. Um, like I mentioned with TIG, you know, you've got very low deposition rates, um, submerged arc, uh, you've got positional air concerns, and of course you've got to consider the mechanical properties to make sure that the change that you're making um, is going to work in, for your situation. Thanks, Susan. Uh, the next level of the hierarchy of controls for OSHA is engineering controls. This is essentially a mechanical means of capturing the fume that's generated. Within this level, we're going to discuss three main categories three main for fume capture. capture. Local exhaust ventilation, which removes fume at the source before reaching the operator's breathing zone. Process enclosure, which creates a physical separation between the operator and the fume itself. And general ventilation, which is able to move large quantities of air to either dilute or filter the contaminants. As a preferred method of control for manual and handheld welding, we're going to take a deeper look into source capture, and you will get us started with a product that is able to capture right at the welding arc. Thanks, Brian. Um, so uh, the one option to control fume right at the arc is, is a welding gun, as Brian mentioned. So, so what are they and how do they work? Well, fume extraction welding guns use suction to capture the fumes generated by the welding process right at the source over and around the weld pool. And they can be tailored to best meet the needs of a specific application or welder preferences. A fume extraction gun is a viable alternative in certain welding applications, including when a welder is in a tight or confined space or must move often to complete welds on a large part. Welding guns with built-in fume extraction are commonly used in heavy industrial welding, such as truck and trailer, rail car, and heavy equipment manufacturing. So what are some best practices when deciding to uh, use fume guns as a way to control fume? Well, as with any fume extraction equipment, proper use and maintenance of fume extraction guns is important to achieve optimal results. 
Operating a fume extraction gun is similar to using a standard MIG gun with many of the same recommended best practices. However, there are some techniques that welders can follow to help get the best performance from a fume extraction gun. One is positioning the gun as close to directly above the weld puddle as possible. This will give the best fume capture result. At an angle of about 0 to 15 degrees is optimal in most applications. Pausing at the end of each weld for about 10 to 15 seconds and holding the fume extraction gun in place without depositing metal will allow the gun to capture residual fumes as the weld bead is cooling. Um, another best practice is frequently inspecting the front end of the gun. That's key to optimizing fume extraction. Regularly inspecting the nozzle, contact tip, and vacuum chamber for signs of spatter buildup, which can block fume extraction and obstruct shielding gas flow is, is really important. Uh, routine inspection of the vacuum hose for damage, cuts, or kinks, um, and replacement of the hose as necessary is also critical when it comes to maintaining a fume extraction gun. So if you decide to pursue fume extraction guns as an option to uh, help fume abatement, what are some features to consider when you're making your choice? Um, well, fume extraction guns are available in a variety of amperages um, and handle designs. Common amperages for fume extraction guns range from 300 to 600 amps. Um, you should always consider a gun's duty cycle rating uh, and keep in mind that it's a balancing act between gun weight and durability. That's, that's for a standard gun and a fume extraction gun. Um, so guns with an adjustable vacuum chamber allow better joint access and visibility and help welders dial in vacuum flow to eliminate porosity. Um, Another nice feature to look for is a suction control valve that can work in conjunction with an adjustable vacuum chamber to balance suction with shielding gas flow and protect against porosity. A flexible and crush resistant vacuum hose will help eliminate the need for a protective hose cover in many applications while reducing overall gun weight and increasing flexibility. Tailoring the gun handle and neck to the application and welder preferences can help improve weld access and also reduce operator fatigue. And common consumable platform is, is something important to look for. And what that means is um, any consumable used on a standard MIG gun or even a robotic MIG gun can be used on a fume extraction gun. When fume gun replacement parts, nozzles, contact ticks, and, and gas diffusers, for example, can be the same as those used on a standard gun, it offers greater flexibility and helps reduce a company's consumable inventory. I'll turn it back over to you, Brian. Thanks, Andy. While fume guns are able to capture right at the arc, it's not always a viable option for your process. So we'll cover a few other different products uh, that can be considered depending upon what your welding environment is or the uh, specific process that you're doing. Um, a few other fume extraction products uh, that are, are generally seen within the welding industry are um, under the local exhaust ventilation and source capture area. Uh, can be defined into portable uh, devices, which are great for maintenance and repair and light-duty welding, just areas where the weld and the environment is constantly changing location. Um, there are also mobile products, which are great for more medium and heavy-duty uh, applications in open work environments. So this is something where a fume extraction arm might not be able to be mounted to a wall or a post, these are uh, pretty portable, uh, but not as quite as small a unit um, for those heavier, heavier welding environments in an open area. Um, there are also stationary or wall-mounted units, which are great for uh, medium and heavy welding again. Um, but these are more in a weld cell or a consistent area form uh, is where you would be really looking into these solutions. And there are also centralized um, solutions for, for local exhaust source, uh, source capture. Centralized solutions are great for multiple weld cell boosts where you're looking at having multiple extraction arms but looking to have only one collector uh, for your filtration device. Another thing to consider when looking at fume capture is general ventilation. This is usually seen in an HVAC system and uses ambient air cleaning. Although this system does not provide capture right at the source, it is great to consider for your overall shop environment. So it's not removing the air before it reaches the welder's breathing zone, but it can be great for other personnel in the area that's around the welding operation. And the last form to really consider for engineering controls is process and closure. 
This is OSHA's preferred method, method for the engineering control level. The reason this is such an ideal solution is that it creates a physical barrier between the operator and the weld fume, completely removing them away from the hazard. The one thing to note, this method still does require a source of filtration and removing of the fume. This is most commonly seen in a hood that is put over the entire um, cell itself um, and usually is hooked to some type of a collector, whether it's a centralized or stationary uh, device for the actual filtering mechanism. A few things to consider when looking at engineering controls and fume extraction devices. Um, there are a couple things that can really affect the performance of the device itself. A few things to keep in mind are the work environment, um, as doors, fans, any air travel and disturbances can really affect the weld plume and how it travels into the extraction device. The part size or the number of joints can also uh, take, in, take a big change for uh, fume ex extraction devices themselves as they may require moving uh, the device for proper placement of trying to pull the fume away from the operator and not pass them. Um, and then obviously other equipment that is within your, your shop itself, such as cranes, ducting, uh, those kinds of devices might actually interfere with the fume extraction device and limit its access to where the actual weld joint is. A few other things to consider when selecting your extraction device is really the amount of welding that you're doing, as this is going to affect the filter life and, of course, consumable costs. In general, there are two styles of filters to consider, both disposable and self-cleaning filters. Disposable are best for light-duty applications having lower arc-on time. Um, these units initially have a lower cost investment than self-cleaning, um, but they have a much less uh, lower filter life than what you would see in a self-cleaning application. So self-cleaning filters themselves uh, have an application in the device to actually get the weld particulate off the filter and they're great for medium to heavy applications. When um, you're looking at using the self-cleaning in a proper method, you can get up to eight times longer life than a disposable filter for these um, units themselves. A few other things to consider when you're talking filter life and performance in the machine is really the quantity of fume that you're doing, whether it's fume generation rate or just the arc on time itself. If the parts are clean and full, are, are free of moisture and contaminants like rust and oil, um, and then obviously the type of fume, whether it's a welding or a cutting process, these all can play a role in your filter life and the, the type of uh, fume extraction device that you're, you're deciding uh, to go with. So there are many considerations really when looking at engineering controls and fume extraction device, but there are a few key advantages and disadvantages to remember when you're evaluating this method of control. Um, these solutions are able to capture the hazard before it reaches the operator's breathing zone. They're able to improve the general workplace environment in the air uh, in the workplace, and there's a solution that can fit almost any application. On the contrary, however, there are a few limitations when considering engineering controls. Base restraints may require a physical change to the work environment or not allow the fume extraction device to be used. Uh, consumable costs are a consideration when you're looking at the filter life and replacement uh, filters on your maintenance res uh, regimen um, for the unit itself. So the cost is something to take into consideration there. And there's the possibility of uh, productivity and productivity losses due to the time interacting with the extraction device to ensure that you're remaining in compliance and actually removing the fume from the environment. The third level of the OSHA hierarchy of controls is work practice controls. Work practice controls can be defined uh, as a change to workplace procedures, policies, and the way people work to limit their exposure to the hazard. These changes can be looked at in a few high-level categories. Body positioning, which is essentially training to remove your head from the weld plume. Visibility enhancements, which allow the operator to see the weld much better and can encourage better body positioning. And then proper training, 
which is ideal for reducing fume generation, overwelding, but can also lead to less scrap and rework. While this level initially can seem like it's going to be the most difficult to implement, training is essential to success of any level. A few of the advantages within this level uh, of, of training is that um, you can get improvements in not just compliance, um, but to your general welding itself. Whether training on proper technique can lead to less uh, scrap and rework, or visibility enhancements might actually lead to improved productivity rates. The biggest drawback with this level is that training devices can be a significant investment and the re results require a behavior change to the personnel and the operators doing the welding. Finally, the last means of protection, according to OSHA's hierarchy, is the personal protective equipment, or PPE, specifically respirators. These respiratory devices, uh, what they do is they create a barrier between the hazard and the operator preventing them from inhaling the hazardous substance. This is not necessarily the most preferred method of protection, but there are a few essential times that should be taken into consideration of when this method of control should be used. The main times to use it are if other methods are not feasible or they're not able to reduce the limits low enough from, like Bert was talking about with OSHA and the ACGIH, below those levels would be a time to consider respiratory as a last means of, of defense. Uh, another time to use it would be during maintenance or in emergency situations, or while you're uh, looking to install or maintain other fume management solutions. According to OSHA, along with some of these considerations of when to use the PPA, uh, one of the things they do state within Section 29 uh, CFR 1910.134, a respirator shall be provided to each employee when such equipment is necessary to protect the health of such employee. The employer shall provide the respirators which are applicable and suitable for the purpose intended, and the employer shall be responsible for the establishment and maintenance of the respiratory protection program. This program shall cover each employee required by this section to use a respirator. In essence, what this, what this is saying by OSHA is it's putting the onus on the employer and not the employee to provide the proper means of respiratory protection and maintenance within the, uh, the respiratory protection for their employees. For those environments where the level of the hazard requires the use of a respiratory protection program, the company must have in place what is called a, res a written respiratory protection program. This program is something that must include the respirator that is selected, medical evaluations for each operator that is using the, the uh, respiratory protection. If a tight-fitting respirator is selected, uh, fit testing must be performed and the evaluation kept on file. Um, the use of how it's going to be done in both routine and emergency situations, establish schedule for cleaning the, the respirator equipment, and procedures to ensure that the air quality and the flow are both acceptable for atmosphere supplying respirators. The employees must be trained on the use of uh, this respiratory protection and the valuation of this respiratory protection program. Now, not all environments require the use or mandatory use of respiratory protection, um, but some employers will offer it to their employees as an option to use as a means of protection. This is considered voluntary use, but still will, will require a written protection program to be in place, although this is a much less extensive program as it only needs to contain the medical evaluations of the user being on the respiratory uh, protection the maintenance and care of the respirator, and then they, the user must also be supplied with, uh, under OSHA, their, their Appendix D of Section 1910.134. Um, one thing to the note that uh, this voluntary program does not uh, fall under the, the need for a dust mask. Um, if you're using just dust masks as a means of protection, uh, written protection program is not something that needs to be uh, kept at the 
uh, place of business. So when considering respiratory protection, there are many different types of PPE to consider, and every environment's going to warrant a different level of protection or type of protection. But really the first thing to consider when you're looking at choosing your respiratory protection is the assigned protection factor, or the APF. This is defined as the level of protection that the class of respirator is expected to provide. Once you know the APF, you can really move on from there to figuring out the class of respirator that you're looking to move forward with. Respirators themselves fall into two general classes, both tight-fitting and loose-fitting respirators. Tight-fitting respirators are ones that form a complete seal with the face and will always require fit testing when in mandatory use. Fit testing is done through two different methods, both qualitative and quantitative. Qualitative uh, fit testing has a user reaction to taste or smell as the pass or fail criteria, whereas quantitative fit testing uses a numerical, me uh, numerical measurement from a fit testing machine to determine if it's a pass or fail uh, of the seal. The second type of respirator is loose fitting. These respirators form a partial seal with the face and are usually under positive pressure to keep the hazard out and away from the breathing zone of the operator. These respirators are great for those operators that have facial hair and would not be able to create the seal with a, a tight-fitting respirator um, as, as they're not tight against the face with a, with a loose-fitting respirator. So along with the, the APF and the classification of the respirator, uh, the type of respirator is really the final consideration to make when you're trying to choose which respiratory protection is best for your environment. Uh, there are two main types of respirators that are common in the welding industry, and they are air purifying and atmosphere supplying respirators. Air purifying respirators, which you can see here, contain a filtering media that removes the contaminants before reaching the operator. These types of respirators are ideal for portable applications where the user is going to be moving around frequently. Within the air purifying type of respirator, there are a few products um, specific to weld fume uh, when we think about the welding environment. Disposable uh, respirators or masks are a non-reusable mask as it's entirely made up of the filter media itself. Half masks are a reusable mask that uses replaceable filters, but generally these masks are tight-fitting, so will require some type of fit testing to be performed before you can wear them. And then the last type is really a powered air purifying respirator, also known as a PAPR. These devices use a, a blower device that has a replaceable filter media, which is able to remove the contaminants from the ambient air around the operator and supply this filtered air up through a tube to uh, a loose-fitting respiratory helmet, usually. The second type of respirator to consider is atmosphere supplying. These types of respirators have a separate source which provides the breathable air to the user. Within the wel welding market, the most common product that we see within this category is a supplied air respirator. This style uses an air hose and some, some type of an air control device to supply the breathable air from a separate source, generally up to a loose-fitting uh, respiratory helmet. One thing to consider when using these, uh, these types of, of respirators within the, the welding environment is that you are tethered to an air source, air source so uh, your mobility is limited as you generally have a hose hooked to you and hooked to another device so um, mobility is confined to whatever length that hose is going to be. That being said, there are some cost benefits with these units as they don't have the same turnover uh, of the filter life and consumables that you're going to see within your normal air purifying respirators that we just discussed. Well, this form of controlling weld fume is really considered the last means of protection from OSHA, there are many advantages that you can get from these units. These, these uh, respiratory devices can deliver filtered air directly to the user's breathing zone, and some supplied air units can actually provide heat stress relief in hot working environments. Loose-fitting respirators 
can be, be a, a great device for combating any safety glass fogging that you normally would get with a tight seal from uh, a tight-fitting respirator. And with these, in general, uh, mobility is really unlimited um, as, a, as compared to other forms of uh, capturing and control uh, within the hierarchy. There are also a few disadvantages that come with using respirators as well. As we stated earlier, this is the last means to consider uh, according to OSHA's hierarchy. So all other means should be considered and vetted out on whether they work or not before considering respiratory protection. It also requires a, a written respiratory protection to be in place even when in voluntary use. Consumable costs must be taken into consideration, especially when you're looking at the air purifying respirators as they have a higher filter life turnover just to the general nature of their design. And this means of protection also puts a physical burden on the employee as compared to other, uh, other forms of fume and, and capture devices. So to summarize uh, the hierarchy of controls, there are really four main levels to consider, and they increase in, infect in effectiveness as you move up the hierarchy. So the biggest thing to remember is to start at the top and work your way down. When it comes to compliance, there is really no one answer that solves every weld environment and every hazard. It may require multiple different solutions and testing or retesting of the hazard, and it should be considered an ongoing process. So as things change in the workplace or with regulations, it may also require you to have retesting done or consider a different solution. Um, so before I turn it over to Bert for a wrap up, really the biggest thing to remember is that anytime there is a change, get your fume levels retested. Thank you, Brian, that was an excellent job. So that was a, uh, a quick review of the overall process and, and how we're going to uh, control the welding environment. First and foremost, we want to control the welding environment to protect the health and safety of our employees. But there's other benefits resulting from fume reduction, reducing indirect costs such as lowering insurance premiums, workers' comp, workers comp premiums, it can protect you from OSHA inspections and fine. I've been involved with many cases where we've done uh, uh, weld fume studies and, and OSHA comes in and they see we've, we've done a job already and they'll, they'll turn right around and, and not conduct an inspection. And also can help to uh, recruit and retain skilled workers. When the workers know that you care about their health and safety, they're going to stay with you. So uh, we have time for questions. I'm going to turn it back over to the moderator to, uh, to field those questions. All right, thank you very much. And thank you to all of our speakers for your excellent insights and expertise. And before we start the Q&A, I want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. Uh, the survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve our future webcasts. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You can also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. Okay, let's get to some questions. Can you uh, more specifically um, explain the configuration of a fume gun system? I can take that. Yeah, in, in general. Um, you have a, a vacuum source or a, a unit that generates the vacuum. Um, so the gun connects to your welding power source, and there's generally an elbow on the rear strain relief of the gun that you connect a vacuum hose to, and that goes to the vacuum source. So that vacuum is pulled then from the source um, through the hose that leads to the gun, and then over the neck of the gun, through the handle, and through a vacuum hose that goes over the power cable of the gun. Thank you very much. Um, next question, why is PPE at the bottom of the list when it seems like it would be the less expensive of all the solutions and provide immediate results for the operator?
Well, this is Bert. I can take a crack at that one. Uh, yes, it, it can protect the workers, but uh, if anyone's actually worn a respirator all day, uh, they can be uncomfortable, they can be hot, uh, they're not foolproof, they have to fit properly. So it's really best to engineer out the uh, the health hazard before we have to rely on any type of personal protective equipment. Thank you. Um, next question, is there a system that can be attached to the electrode holder that can take in welding fumes and safety and safely exhaust them? If so, please discuss. Hi, this is, this I can is take Andy that one. I can, oh, sure, go ahead. Go ahead, Andy. Oh, I was, I was going to say, uh, I, I haven't seen it before. Um, I know that in, in some gun applications, um, you can run a hose from a vacuum source along the outside of the gun and attach it to the end of the neck. Um, it, that's not always a preferred method because you have an extra hose that runs external to the, to the gun that you have to manipulate and work around as you're trying to get work done. Um, I suppose that it's possible that something like that could be used with an electrode holder. I, I haven't seen it before, but I, it, it, there's potential there, I would suppose. Our next question, what type of eye protection is recommended for an IH conducting air sampling um, for a welding operation? Ah, that is a good question. Uh, there are glasses available uh, to protect against welding fume. Uh, typically, a hygienist doesn't have to observe the entire welding process. You just merely have to check on things periodically. But uh, check with your local safety supply house, and they can give you the proper shaded glasses to, uh, to be able to observe the operations. Our next question, can you please clarify the deposition rate? I'll t I can take that one. Um, when you talk about deposi deposition rate, uh, typically, what we're talking about is pounds per hour. How much uh, uh, weld, you know, what the weight of the weld is that you're putting down. So that's when I talk about, you know, the sub-arc process is very high deposition rate because you can put, you're, you're welding a lot of material, whereas something like the TIG process is very low because it's a very slow uh, process where you're manually feeding in the wire. So it's 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 the bottom line is pounds per hour. Our next question, uh, what kind of medical tests should be done annually by welders to, in order to stay on the safe side? This is Bert. I'll take that. Uh, again, according to OSHA regulations, you, there, are, there is no requirement for an annual physical. You, you have to fill out that Appendix D to make sure you're medically fit to wear a respiratory protection, but there's no uh, regulation according to OSHA where it has to be annual. Now, of course, many companies do provide annual physicals uh, to their workers, and it can be just a general questionnaire, a respiratory uh, questionnaire. Um, in my experience, very few companies go beyond that. A pulmonary function test might be given to an employee to, to uh, ascertain his uh, lung function, but again, it's not required by OSHA. Now, our next question, does air being drawn through the uh, flume, flume system need to be filtered? I, I can take that one. I, I guess in general, it would depend on what uh, air is being pulled through the fume system. Um, is, if it is a hazardous uh, air or if it has those hazardous elements in it, then yes, it would need to be a, a filtered uh, device, whether usually seen in the collector before it is either exhausted back into the uh, facility or outside the facility. Our next question, uh, do powered air purifying respirators require a medical evaluation and fit tests? Really anything, uh, well. go ahead. So really any any respirator that is being used or respiratory protection will require uh, the medical evaluation for mandatory use um, and voluntary use as well. Um, 
but the fit testing will really depend on uh, what that device is. So if it's going into a loose-fitting helmet, let's say, that will not require fit testing. But if it is going into a device that is uh, tight-fitting, more of like the half-mask-looking uh, style where it's tighter around your, your face and mouth, um, that would require fit testing. Our next question, should a welder be concerned with fume extraction gun, um, or fume extraction gun affecting the uh, shielding gas coverage? Hi, this is Andy again, and yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, you definitely should, um, but there are a couple different ways to mitigate that. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about an adjustable vacuum shroud. So that's a, that's a piece that goes over the standard weld nozzle. And one feature to look for in a fume extraction gun is whether or not that's adjustable. So one thing you can do if you're, you're getting some porosity because shielding gas is being sucked up in the vacuum flows, you can uh, normally move that back away from the weld puddle. Um, so that's one way to avoid uh, pulling shielding gas uh, from the weld puddle. Um, you always have to balance that with optional or optimal um, fume capture efficiency. But that's one way to help mitigate it. Another is that a lot of guns will have a flow control valve on, on the, the handle, near the handle on the neck somewhere. Um, so what it is is really just a vacuum bleed off. Um, so you can twist that and open up the bleed off valve as much as you need to to, to maintain that balance between shielding gas lost and um, uh, optimal vacuum flow. Our next question, even though uh, TIG or TIG is low risk, what type of engineering control can be used if there um, is a fume gun attachment? I can take that one. Um, I, I guess for um, the TIG process, there's not necessarily a fume gun attachment, um, as Andy kind of went through when you see it in the MIG process. Um, but there are some different accessories that can be used with the um, actual uh, filtration device to bring it in close to where the actual weld arc is. Um, there's some different nozzles um, and, and, and slotted devices that can actually get um, that vacuum hose very close to where the welding arc is. Um, if it would be needed um, with, with TIG to actually have a uh, source capture device. Um, but to my knowledge, there's no actual fume gun per se for the TIG process. Our next question is uh, resistance welding using electrical current to melt the metal pieces together in a press as opposed to using ordinary welding gases just as much of a concern for fume emissions? I can take that one that. as well. Oh. Oh, okay. Go, go you ahead. Want to take it or? Well, you know, there are different considerations with uh, resistance welding than there are, you know, if you've got a uh, um, cons welding consumable. Um, the main thing with resistance welding is you've got to keep in mind what, what the uh, material is that you're welding and if there's any kind of, you know, um, anything on the surface. So, um, Depending on the material, it may or may not be as hazardous, but the only fume that's going to, you know, be in play there is going to be coming from the base material. So I don't know if somebody wants to add to that or not. Our final question, should we use the same level of concern when welding outdoors versus indoors? Well, this is Bert. Uh, obviously, it's, uh, there's lots of uh, variables there, too. How windy is it? Uh, if, if there's significant natural uh, breeze, you want to uh, be upwind of it, so positioning the task outdoors would be important. You don't want to have the wind to blow the uh, fumes in your face. But generally speaking, uh, obviously, outdoors is going to be better, and uh, there's lots of construction activities, obviously, these days with pipelines and, and so on. Um, Sometimes you have no choice where you're positioned, but generally speaking, outdoors is, is 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 going to be pretty safe. All right, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, 
sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded to our speakers. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. That ends today's Safety and Health web magazine webcast. Again, I'd like to thank Andy Mock, Brian Belisle, Susan Fiore, Bert Schiller, everyone at Miller Electric, and, of course, all of our listeners. Have a safe day.